Are you tired of your valuable ideas and suggestions getting lost in the shuffle? Well, that is why I'm introducing Direct Suggest, the revolutionary digital suggestion box that puts your voice front and center. With Direct Suggest, you have the power to make a difference in your organization. Direct Suggest provides value to organizations in various industries worldwide, including notable brands like Comcast, TD Bank, and Nokia. And here's the best part. Direct Suggest only costs 50 cents per employee per month, making it an affordable solution for businesses of all sizes. Plus, they have an incredibly high ROI and savings potential with an average 33 times return on investment. The implementation process is also a breeze. Once committed, setting up Direct Suggest from start to finish can be completed in as quickly as a week or less. Don't let your ideas or your team's ideas go unnoticed. Visit directsuggest.com today and start by making a difference with Direct Suggest. Use the promo code HUMANHR for your extended 60-day free trial. Again, visit directsuggest.com to learn more and remember to use promo code HUMANHR for an extended free trial. Direct Suggest, where your voice matters. Welcome to the Bringing the Human Back to Human Resources podcast. I'm Tracy Chernoff, and I've spent my entire professional career in HR. Each week, we'll explore the delicate balance between people and business with the aim to reconnect the two and create meaningful outcomes. Listen in as I share my own experiences, challenge the status quo, and chat with guests from various industries about our mission to bring the human back to human resources. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Thank you so much for being here for another week. I have a really energetic and engaging and exciting guest on this week, someone that is sure to make you smile and laugh because he does for me. Uh, Who I have on the episode or the podcast this week is Jacques Martiquet, um, who is a belonging strategist who helps human-centered organizations develop and sharpen their connection strategy, a set of methods for fostering the healthy relationships known to prevent turnover and burnout. Since 2017, Jacques has been earning his title as the party scientist by leading thousands of dance parties and shared experiences across 15 countries in 30 different cities and for companies like Accenture, Lush, and Lululemon. Jacques is on a public health mission to transform how the West socializes. Jacques, welcome to the podcast. Woohoo! Really needed that <laughs> ego boost this morning. <laughs> Ah, oh, Tracy. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice to get the bio um, vocalized back to me to to remind yes. me why I'm on Earth and uh, remind me of my roots of yeah, leading flash mobs in different countries. That's 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 truth. so cool. What is the the your favorite country that you visited that you've done this in? Well, most recently I was in Barcelona and Barcelona has a very lively public life. And I think one of the contexts for this conversation is I'm really interested in how to restore like community, that sense of uh, real like neighborhood connectedness in Mm. cities. Uh, And so it's, it's not just the workplace and how workplaces can, can create you know, can tap into the benefits of human connection, but also beyond that and how, you know, cities, how how do our social institutions look like? Uh, but Barcelona, lively public life, and I was there during Pride. And, you nice. know, whenever Pride is happening, it's just people are much more expressed. They're much more positive. They dance more. <laughs> um, and so I was there with my uh, with my speaker that I travel with, which is in the uh, top right corner there. And yeah, I led a few parades and, and everyone was just so uh, ready to to connect with one another and sing. And uh, I remember uh, this is funny. I, I actually so. Another piece that we'll talk about, I'm sure, is the presence of alcohol and how how ingrained alcohol is um, in mm. in Western social behaviors and recreational social behaviors. Um, so I was dancing with someone. It's Barcelona Pride, and I got elbowed in the uh, in the eye, and like oh I, started, <laughs> I started I uh, started bleeding from my eye. Um, uh, and yet someone who was like in a dress, in a dress and like, oh, like, I think she must have been a drag queen, like started to like fix my eye for me. If that's not pride, I don't know what it is. 
<laughs> yeah, it was That's a wonderful awesome. night. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I'm glad that your eye is fully healed because in the video, clearly, you are you are um, unscathed today, which is That's good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, it's so cool that you that you bring like this life of the party energy to all of these companies that you've worked with. I mean, when you and I first connected, it was super clear how passionate you are um, just about the connection and the strategy behind connection and community. And I know that that's something that is a personal driver for you as well. But how did you like break into this passion of yours? Is it something that you've always realized? Is this something that you realized over time after kind of getting involved? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, so I used to study pharmacology, so drug development. Uh, all my work revolves around health and human thriving. And so initially I was really interested in the social determinants of health. And so when I'm leading workshops for leaders, I like to feature some of the literature on human connection and the importance of uh, social connectedness. Uh, so initially, I was at university and I was studying public health. My dad was a public health officer. Um, and so I was raised, I was raised to, to become a doctor and to study public health. Um, Really, what happened and what, <laughs> you know, disappointed my parents, you could say, uh, I discovered that um, I discovered event planning and I discovered the the power and the joy that was possible when I brought humans together in a, in a very unique way um, through celebration, through like these nonverbal modes of connection. I noticed that ordinary people would would do things they wouldn't normally do, and I would I would almost see a level of vitality in them that I wouldn't expect, that I wouldn't ever see. And I started, uh, I was really addicted to this witnessing people who normally were quite low energy and shy. I, I loved seeing these people come alive and express themselves in a whole new way. And that became my, my high. And that was my mm -hmm. language in the beginning was how do we spread natural highs through human connection? And now I've just shifted to places where there isn't a lot of non-conventional social behavior. It's, you know, in workplaces, it's, it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's quite conversation and intellect based, how we connect versus uh, somatic based, right? There's like mind mediated connection and then there's body mediated connection, which of course involves touch, eye contact, synchrony of movement, singing, uh, so to sum all that up, I was doing public health. I was studying, uh, pharmacology, drug development, and then I started to lead sober parties and I had tremendous success, witnessed a bunch of people come alive and then started doing that, uh, full time. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> it sounds like you really leaned into what you became so clearly passionate about, which is good. And I, I think, um, I say that so literally because I hear a lot from people who are chasing their passions or want to, you know, stop what they're doing as their quote unquote day job because they're not passionate about it and they want to pursue their true passion, right? We always hear this. And I mean, I, I think like I, I have a podcast because I'm passionate about it. You do, you are the party scientist because you're passionate about it. And I'm sure that there are listeners out there who, maybe want to break into HR because they're passionate about it or people who are listening who are like, I'm not really sure that I'm passionate about HR, but I'm passionate about something that I do. And maybe this is the, maybe this is the sign for them to make sure that for everyone listening, that you're doing something that you're passionate about because not you, you're not going to feel passionate. Maybe, maybe you won't feel passionate every single day. There's always going to be that, that up and down uh, element because at the end of the day, it is still work potentially that we're doing. Um, but if you can feel passionate about what you do, at least 80% of the time, you're probably getting some pretty decent returns, not only individually, but also 
potentially like financially, or I should say not individually, but maybe so more so emotionally. Um, would you agree? I see you nodding your head. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a lot of things I want to build off there. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, the first is a quote by Naval Ravikant and he says, uh, the meaning of life, the purpose of life is to do things for their own sake. And so I think we're all on this quest to discover something we just want to do for its own sake. We're not doing it for the money. We're not doing it for social mm -hmm. status. We're not doing it for, for likes and, you know, posting or showing off on social media. Um, and I'm really lucky to have discovered something that adds value to society. And, and I just, I'm, I'm intrinsically motivated to do it. The other thing that I want to emphasize, and this is what I learned when I was uh, on a on a globe trotting journey, uh, when I was doing a lot of virtual sessions, I ended up living in Guatemala for three months, a big island of Hawaii, wow. and then my trip ended in Barcelona. So, at that Pride event, um, I realized that it was it was less about what I was doing and where I was, and it was more about who I was with. And I've written about this on my blog. Um, I think that what's more important than what I'm doing is uh, who I'm with and how I'm connecting with those people. And I, I want to emphasize the how. Um, like if we were to both do a little thought experiment and like imagine that we're maybe, uh, you know, we're, we're uh, what is it called when uh, pest pests in like a house let's okay. say we are both Oof. hunting down cockroaches in some oh some area um if if you and i are on the same team and we don't pay attention to one another and we don't um we don't uh have, have a playful dynamic we can't make jokes about one another um you know let's say we're both really inhibited and we're trying to impress each other we're pretentious so we're, we're not mm -hmm. being our authentic selves um then that job's gonna suck but if mm -hmm. we uh have cultivated playfulness and we have this psychological safety so that we can we can you know maybe poke fun at each other kind of uh and we can uh look look in certain ways that aren't formal, you know, like I'm, when I'm dancing, as an example, I'm not looking professional, I'm not looking good. Um, and, mm. you know, that's, I think one of the paradoxes of psychological safety is like, you know, everyone's trying to look good. But if yeah. you just stop trying to look good, you know, it like relieves all the tension and everyone's, you know, feels safer to take risks. Uh, so the yeah, point is, yeah. We could be a great team uh, cleaning up the, the cockroaches and we would have a lot of fun doing it potentially because we've cultivated this relational intelligence and, you know, we, we might be able to joke around and have fun. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's interesting what you say about the paradox to psychological safety because it's, it's, I have probably mentioned psychological safety on every episode in the last year. Like I, I would be willing to throw some money on that. And it's not a coincidence. It's because of the importance and the impact that it has on an organization when it does or does not exist. And psychological safety is one of those interesting things that everyone has heard about, but not everyone knows how to implement or execute psychological safety in the workplace. You're absolutely right that part of it is this like authenticity in really just being so transparent in who you are and being unafraid and unabashed and almost like setting the stage for what psychological safety could look or feel like by being by being the one to take the risk in putting yourself in a situation that maybe doesn't feel so safe because you don't know if it exists yet. Um, and I find that a lot of HR leaders or people leaders who really do want this type of human-centered human-centric workplace self, are probably yeah. the ones yeah they're probably the ones who are first stepping into that like you know space of how is this going to be received and putting themselves out on the edge on the ledge I can't speak today where they you know ultimately are being their truest selves and and allowing others to say oh well if they could do it so could I mm. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I like that you bring up authenticity and I wanna I wanna hear about your approaches to to creating that authenticity in, in a team. I, I think organizationally it's it's a different question. And and like you said, you know, you know, we're the we're the people people. And so yep. we are excited to bring these new cultural phenomena into the organization. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, humans, it's hard to change human behavior and it's even more challenging to change human psychology. Um, so it's, 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 you know, it's one thing to do it in a team and then it's another to operationalize it. And I'm much more interested in like, well, you have a group of people how, what, what can you do? What activities can you lead? What can you get the group doing? How can you use facilitation uh, tactics to just immediately boost people's energy, their sense of closeness, their sense of authenticity? That's, that's what I'm really interested in. But I want to go back mm -hmm. to psychological safety because uh, often it's contextualized in this, uh, the, 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 the sense of brainstorming and the sense of like problem solving and creativity. And mm. I think we also must acknowledge that psychological safety is, is like the fertile soil for any real relationship. Like if, you know, we can't be in an authentic relationship with someone if we can't make social risks, like if we're constantly self-monitoring, um, like for what we can do and what we can't do and what's going to be punished and what's going to be celebrated, like that just can't be an authentic, relaxed relationship. And so I think broadening the context of psychological safety to the fundamentals of authentic relationships and connections at work is so important and it really just comes down to social risks and social risks can look like uh publicly challenging a leader you know within the organization or mm -hmm. a social risk could be asking like a personal question to a colleague or uh giving out uh like double high five or being mm -hmm. the first one to maybe like initiating a huddle in, in your physical team at, at an offsite, you know, like there, there's so many other forms of social risks. Um, one of them is just vulnerability, right? Revealing oneself and yeah. all of those social risks that I just described, those are just, those are just the, the authentic relationship building pieces. And then there's this whole other Amy Edmondson work, like, where we're challenging things, bringing up controversial ideas. And, and that's, uh, I would say, a narrower context of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes me think about how psychological safety can be derailed so quickly by one, one poor relationship damaging moment, you know, and your, your discussion around the, the importance of relationships as being like this, you know, sharpening of a connection strategy that everything kind of comes down to how the relationships feel and are within between people and within an organization. You know, it, it's just like one person can dismantle psychological safety. It just takes one person to create it as well. And I think in organizations, at least what I find is that some of the challenge in in allowing employees to feel like their psychological safety comes down to this uh, potentially like a top-down approach in all those things that you mentioned where psychological safety sometimes just sits in that contextual bucket of, you know, the the logical piece of a workplace um, and the competence and whatever else comes to mind there. But it really, it to your point, it has to go beyond that context. But it's the, I, I do think that this is where it's a, there's a top-down responsibility to create that because so often there is this um kind of as you mentioned before like putting on a show looking good you know giving everyone this appearance that you've got it all together but when a leader shows hey I've messed up or this is what I'm going through and they kind of let their guard down and let people in to build relationships in that way 
I mean, the 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 bond between team members at that stage is much much more strong and much easier to build on, I think. And I've spoken with leaders who don't believe that psychological safety is top down, but I think that this is one element of culture building where it really truly is because why would someone who's earning $50,000 a year be the person to go out on on the limb and, you know, promote psychological safety by, you know, letting their guard down when their, you know, executive team potentially is not reciprocating or even welcoming that. So for those listening, I mean, many, many people listening are in leadership roles within HR or outside of HR. It, it, it can start with us. It's top down, but HR has such an influence on what that top-down approach looks like mm. throughout, you know, different decision-making mechanisms and things like that, you know? Yeah, I, I really love that you're bringing these two into the conversation. And I think really what you're emphasizing is, and I talk a lot about this in um, when, when, I, when I teach facilitators and also when I coach people on how to have more energizing human connections and it's like, just be the first one to take the social risk. Like be the first one to be mm-hmm. authentic, be the first one to reveal yourself. And so when leaders role model that, and I love that you emphasized role modeling and 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 revealing that we're imperfect. We're, we're mm-hmm. all human. We all have the this like monkey mind and we all have trouble keeping our word and we all have trouble maintaining our habits. And this is like the human experience that we're all sharing. And so when leaders reveal that and they become relatable, it can just, and this is what I, I love to do this at every event and workshop. I, I just name that. I name that we're all human. We're all going to make mistakes. And I I always role model social risks. And I, I poke fun at myself. Like I won't, mm-hmm. I won't take myself seriously. Uh, of, you know, in some cases, of course, I'll reinforce my credibility and my competence, but I'll also, you know, laugh at my mistakes. And that is an ability I've cultivated over years of retreats and whatnot. So, so I think there's the role modeling piece and I see that as, you know, it's, and I, in my world, a facilitator and a group, that's the facilitator's impact on that group in a meeting. That's going to be a top-down approach. It's also leadership to the rest of the organization. And then I think the bottom-up approach is what can we do in our one-on-one connections with each other? What are those interactions happening outside of meetings? They're one-on-one. And and that is also a place where psychological safety can be reinforced. And I want to just give the audience one tool called vulnerability loops. Have you heard of this concept? No, but I'm excited. Awesome. Yeah. So... There's this other concept popularized by Gottman. He's the guy who came up with the four horsemen for like marital uh, divorce rates. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gottman, he's a famous guy within like marriage counseling. Anyway, when we make a bid for someone's attention or we reveal something about ourselves, uh, we say something vulnerable or we um, express ourselves, uh, maybe we express a, a challenging emotion. We're opening up a vulnerability loop. And if the other human doesn't acknowledge us for what we just did, then psychological safety gets damaged. So mm. when I make a bid or I ask for your attention and I reveal that, um, you know, I got hit in the face in at pride in barcelona that's like me opening up a vulnerability loop now you could have just uh gotten distracted you could have ignored that fact um or you could have checked your phone or you could have just changed the subject entirely but you didn't right you close the vulnerability loop you acknowledged what i revealed about myself the the expression the potential pain was more hilarity Mm -hmm. 
And so you close the vulnerability loop. And the, that is like the essential structure of how authentic relationships form is I reveal something about myself. I make a bid for your attention and you acknowledge that and respond in a way that like makes me feel valued. And that closes the loop and that builds an authentic relationship. And that's, that's the bottom fascinating. up. That's fascinating. I've literally never heard of that, nor have I ever thought of that. And it's really, I mean, it's very true. I'm sure it's very deeply ingrained in EQ, emotional intelligence, because if your natural instinct is to be like, oh, okay, that's interesting, and you just move on to the next thing, then maybe your emotional intelligence is not so high. Um, but leaders, you know, whether they value emotional intelligence or not, and you don't have to lead people to be a leader. Um, you can be a leader in your own right, regardless of the role or the title that you have. But I'm just think I'm thinking of leaders throughout my experience who, maybe yeah, that that just do not have the skill set for can, uh, closing the vulnerability loop, and just like any other skill, when you teach it, maybe you become more aware of it. So it would be really interesting to test this theory. I'll I'll add a um a poll or a, a you know in the Spotify uh, version of this podcast and I'll look to see if anyone who heard that thought about their own experience and maybe realized where they could either improve their ability to you know influence a vulnerability loop or if this is something that they've heard before so if you're watching or listening on Spotify make sure you answer that that poll because that's really interesting and I'm super excited to bring that to my organization so thank you for that Cheers to (laughs) paying attention in a highly distracting world. If your company is remote or hybrid, then you know just how difficult it can be to grow your company's culture beyond a pre-scheduled Zoom happy hour or occasional lunch and learn. Well, this week's sponsor is here to solve that. They're called CultureBot. CultureBot has devised what will likely become the gold standard for growing and blossoming a company culture inside of Slack. The app is like a sidekick for any HR or people professional, automating a lot of the mundane tasks you probably are forgetting to do on a daily basis. Things like birthday and work anniversary celebrations, team shout outs and kudos, employee introductions and remote games. It even has health and wellness tips and conversation starters. If that piques your interest, this will get you even more excited. Today, I'm able to share a special promotion for listeners of the podcast. You can get your first six months of CultureBot for 50% off. Plus, if your team is under 25 employees, CultureBot is free forever. So if you're looking for a way to create a culture of appreciation and drive increased engagement and togetherness across your team, I definitely recommend checking out CultureBot. Go to getculturebot.com slash humanhr. That's getculturebot.com slash humanhr to get the offer. Plus, I've added the link in the show notes, so you can just click right there. Now, let's get back to the podcast. Oh, right? (laughs) Seriously. Speaking of highly distracting, I was excited to ask you this question because someone reached out to me recently about working remotely and this feeling of isolation that they have and that this is like their... Their first role where they're remote, um, they were in school during COVID. So they, I guess maybe they worked remotely, went to school remotely when they needed to. But, you know, for the most part, this is their first like job within their careers. And that the sense of isolation, the feeling of isolation is really profound and that they're not sure that even remote work is something that they're um, akin to and that they really appreciate, even though they appreciate the flexibility and that part of this feeling of isolation is that they see what the rest of the world is doing, that people are traveling and they're working remote. You know, it's all the highlight reels on social media um, and that they don't they want to be more involved with people. They want to have that social element to their workday, but that they don't have necessarily colleagues in their, you know, in their town. So how how do you approach this from a human centrism perspective? I mean, you work with companies on their, their strategy for connection. What, what makes remote work different? How do you help those who maybe are struggling with the, the connection because of remote work? Like what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. Why? I think that's a much more relevant question then, you know, how do we, how do we bring together in-person groups? 
because mm. the nonverbal cues uh, for in-person groups enable more of these vulnerability loops. So uh, back to remote work, uh, the state of remote work 2023 was just published. And so the second greatest struggle that remote workers cite is loneliness. The first struggle is getting out of the house. So they don't have a reason to leave the house. Um, so I'm really interested in this question. How do we effectively create connection? And I think with connection comes culture, like team culture and connection within a virtual team. And how I think HR leaders can approach that problem is by training managers on how to like lead uh, connection activities as a habit in their virtual team meetings. I think that's essential. Um, but for remote workers who, you know, don't feel uh, connected to their teams, I, I mean, there's two things that might be contributing to that. I mean, one thing might be uh, you might, they might not have a sense of community and connectedness in their physical neighborhood. And that's maybe why they might feel isolated. The, yeah. the, the second contributor might be that uh, their team is entirely work focused. And just like any you know, mainstream team, you, you jump on a meeting, small talk, small talk, small talk, then work, 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 then goodbye. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I would recommend, and there's a great organization called grow remote. They're one of my clients and they're the reason why they're such a big advocate for remote work is that remote work enables workers to be in rural communities and participate in rural communities more. So remote work is the engine for community engagement within the local community. Um, so they don't have to like drive somewhere. They can really engage in the local community. So for remote workers I and, and for everyone, for every human, we are not intentional enough with our community building right? Oftentimes friendships organically develop, communities organically develop. I'm much more of an intentional practitioner and I mm. am also an active creator of my community. You are a creator of your community. And if you feel socially isolated, people are waiting for you to reach out to them. People are lonely. People love it when you reach out to them. And so my recommendation would be to take more of an intentional stance in your community building and have people over, introduce people to one another, lead uh, connection games at your events. The second piece is how to equip managers with, with better tools to, to connect the team. I would, I would start if you're if you're a manager if you lead a team i would start by getting motivated by looking at all the organizational research on how powerful connection is and how you know according to cigna according to gallup according to better up right like there's all this data out there which relates belonging and connection to sick days turnover like workplace productivity so yeah. the first part is getting motivated by seeing the data. And then the second piece is making time and, and making time creating, I, I say this in my article on human connection strategies, we need to evolve from merely creating time and space, which is excellent. That's the first step, creating time and space for connection. That's important. The third step, and, and the reason why I imagine a lot of leaders don't create time and space is because it's just, it's not effective. I mean, most team building practices are not effective, right? No one's practicing vulnerability in a lot of team building exercises. It's pretty much mm -hmm. entertainment. So what I say in my article is 
the philosophy of a human connection strategy is not just creating a calendar event and doing some sort of entertaining activity or doing happy hours. The new philosophy is using social neuroscience. Like what can we get the group doing that's actually going to nourish them, that's actually going to activate these social, these healthy social neurotransmitters like oxytocin and endorphins. And so the structure, the structure for authentic social bonding is so important and giving your managers the ability to create that structure is important. And let me say one last thing. Structure is essentially permission to be authentic, to have fun, to express emotions. Structure is simply permission in my language. Hmm. That's so interesting. I like that structure is permission. And I'm thinking about all of the the uh, emails and DMs that I get from those who really struggle in their environments, right? Like they're they're not having good experiences or maybe they they feel like they don't have the psychological safety, they don't have the connection. And then on the other hand, I get all of those emails where people are like I love where I work. I love what I do, but I have this question. How do I, you know, how do I advance in my career? Right. And you get like those two polar opposite experiences. And it just made me think about the, those who are, I'm going to go ahead and say taking up space in companies and really important roles and not creating the structure or giving people permission. You heard it here first. And you know, that might be a hot take, but get out of well, those roles. Make room what are we, place. what do you do? When your boss is not like low EQ, I, I don't know. I, I haven't, my clients have all been so gung-ho about new connection practices. So I don't know, you know, I, I think we got to focus on this for a little. Like if a manager does not prioritize connection, does not role model psychological safety, is very res- reserved and held back and refraining from bringing their whole self to work how how does someone on that team like i just i i'm clueless in this moment (laughs) yeah me too it's i mean it is the age-old question of like how do we operate in this way now interestingly enough um i did an episode i want to say it was probably last year where i had a guest on who said that you don't have to have eq to be high eq to be successful and that it depends on the role that you're in it depends on the industry that you're in and it really challenged my own beliefs because i don't know that i was 100% uh on board until i really heard his um you know thought process and examples that you know for example if someone's working in accounting they're like and they're not managing people and they're just like kind of plugging and placing numbers like Maybe they don't need high EQ in order to be successful in their role, which might be true. But if you're leading people, if you're dealing with, and and dealing with, I'm saying this, it sounds maybe a little bit cynical. I don't mean it to sound that way. But if you're dealing with people, you've got people to, to answer to on your team. At some point, you do have to have EQ that is not low. You know, maybe it's not the highest EQ on the team, but you have to be willing to set your own feelings aside and listen and respond and act based on feedback that you get based on what the team needs, because it always comes back to like situational awareness too. Like not every single person is going to respond or act the same way or respond to feedback or receive feedback the same way. So you can't lead people the same way. You have to have situational awareness. Yeah, I I love that. And the last part of what you just said, I was thinking about neurodiversity and Mm everyone's neurodiverse, you know, and, and EQ is a part of that neurodiversity and EQ does help, uh, managers lead their teams, motivate people, right? Like empathy and relational intelligence and, and understanding, you know, the cues for when a vulnerability loop has opened, that's all super important. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, what, what, what I'm kind of still curious about, and, and I, I, you know, I'm just coming back to this question about, you know, just people who don't have 
some of these skills and who are just burning out their team and, and exploiting their team. I mean, and this is how a lot of corporations work. I mean, this is the legal structure of a corporation is to squeeze like as much out yeah. <laughs> like of yeah. their Juice people us. as possible. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think that, yes, you can be successful as a, as a manager um, if, if that's what's rewarded within your company. Like if, if right. authentic connection is not rewarded and work is rewarded and your your team is just filled with people who are motivated motivated by money and that's all they want to do they just want to work as hard as possible get their money and then get the hell out of that company that is very different that's a very different culture and i would not work with a company like that like they're not going to care about yeah. connection versus a company that has more of a long term perspective that that well-being like this is not this is not a job. This is a calling. There's a purpose to this work. Like there's an identity. I mean, greatest example is Lush Cosmetics, right? I had the privilege of working with uh, their conference and this company quit social media because research came out that social media destroys the mental health of like young teenagers. Yeah, They quit social media. Like these people are so aligned with wow. with like ethics and wow. it was inspiring like i've never heard of a company go that far and the people there they're lifers they work there they love the company and they're there forever and they're so authentic they they have they wear whatever they want they have you know their tattoos right like it's just a super authentic culture and i i think that you know that it's just like if if a company's approach to profitability is just based on, you know, like the legal corporate shareholder incentive, then um, there's no point having this conversation about like connection and whatnot. And especially if the people yeah. there, they just, they just want to get out as quickly as possible. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, in, in my line of work, so to speak, it's all, it's all culture. It's all, how do we keep people engaged? How do we keep people retained? But that's the, what you just talked about is like getting to the root cause. What is valued and appreciated in an organization? Because that's the culture. And it's only when there's a shift from profits and profitability and productivity to authenticity, connection, and belonging that where you see a cultural shift. It takes every single person to be on board. I always say that I learned from a former leader of mine who was awesome. She um, really changed my mind about culture. I used to think that it was some mostly like top down because if you don't, you know, kind of like what I was just saying that if you don't make that intentional shift, you can't have the culture. But she always said that culture is created or destroyed by every single person and that every single person has to, you know, buy into the culture of an organization in order to promote it. And so in the in the years that I worked for her, it really changed my perspective on this in that, you know, if if a company wants to be the company that has an amazing connected and talented re retained workforce, they have to start with what they value, appreciate and reward. I've heard before when it, during COVID, after COVID, I've heard it all throughout my career where someone recognizes someone like a, you know, a teammate for working while they were sick. This is a perfect example. Working while they're sick. Thanks so much for, you know, uh, putting in those extra hours. I know that you were sick and you had a fever and stuff, but I really appreciate you putting in that extra work to get this thing done. Now on the surface, that person's like, Thanks, man. Really appreciate your recognition, right? Like, thanks so much. I appreciate, you know, love a shout out. But deep down, what that does is it, it it asserts the importance that the company values you working until there's nothing left to get something done, where your health doesn't matter because what the outcome was was more important. It might not be the goal of that person recognizing that, but that is that is the subliminal and to me not so subtle. Um, results of recognize. So this is like a, a probably the best example that I could give of where a company might think that they value connection and belonging, but if they say or do something like that, actually they don't. 
Yeah, oh well, well said. <laughs> I, I think the essence of what you're saying is, uh, yeah, to, 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 to evaluate the culture of a company, just look at what behaviors are rewarded. Right. Yeah, right? period. Um, yeah. On this topic of uh, culture, I want to just bring this back to human connection strategy. Um, so I, I got a quote from one of the executives at Lush. And their whole approach to like positive human connection at work is just attracting the right people who already have the shared values and they, they just naturally connect super well. Um, So for Lush connection begins with shared values. And so this is what the, uh, one of the executives shared, uh, Elisa We teach, train, and immerse our people in everything we believe as a company and how we can do much more than just sell things. We actually make a difference in the world, leaving the world lusher than we found it. As a campaigning company, we foster activism and embrace the individuality of our teams. Our staff are drawn to the brand, most often because of our values and ethics resonate with them. So Hmm. when people, I mean... I talked about the importance of structure and I really do believe that with enough personal questions, we can become friends with anyone. Like I can like anyone on this earth if I just spent enough time asking them personal questions. Like I'm quite convinced, like even people whose values horrify me, Mm -hmm. uh, and so the point, the point here, though, is that if people already share values and ethics, naturally, the, the structure will be less important because people would organically become friends anyway, even if they didn't work at the company. Um, and mm-hmm. so the, the broader perspective here, and we, we just chatted about these kind of two different paths, like... And I, I would describe it as people who are, you know, seeking a job to make money and then get out versus people who are drawn to the company, the purpose, the values. But right. that's like where it begins is like, is that person's motive to make money and get out? Or is that person's motive to contribute to a culture, to be a part of the cause, to be a part of a, an, a, a community that grows right so it like really begins the the people whose motives are you know like less about the the cultural values of the company those people are not going to want to connect with their colleagues unless it's structured Mm -hmm. into the weekly meeting they're just going to want to like you know plug out and kind of get their work done as quickly as possible. Right. right. Um, they may not see connection. So I, I'm just like, there's two mindsets that we can have uh, when we're, when we're like approaching our careers. And if we want to be happier, we can, we can build relationships with our staff. We can have more of a long-term perspective, um, but people have different motives, right? Yeah, it's true. You know, I think this is, it's all just really compelling information and hearing about just like the insights that you've had working with these companies. And even you've mentioned a few times that you work with companies that value these things. I mean, I think it really demonstrates how you perpetuate what you're saying and that you really put action behind your thought process, that you're working with companies that actually live and breathe the mantras that you really believe in and the passions that you have, because I'm sure that if you were to, you know, getting an inquiry from a company that didn't feel that way or didn't prioritize human connection, that you would be in a room or virtually with a group of people who don't have that connection to the values that you have, that the organization wants to have. I mean, Certainly, I think organizations can change. I think that if you if a company really wants to go from, you know, productivity first to belonging and connection first, they can because I don't think that you have to pick one over the other. It just depends on what you're leading with. If you lead with connection and belonging, I've always said that you focus on the team. You don't have to ever think about your profits because 
people will get you the outcome that you want. You just have to focus on how you connect them and how you make them feel good when they're at work for sometimes more than 40 hours a week. So um, I really appreciate just the the insight that you've brought to this episode and the passion that you have around helping honestly make the world a better place because the more connected that we feel with one another at work, which we tend to spend more time at work than anywhere else, the better people feel and the better people feel, the nicer they are to other people. Um, and it kind of just spreads in a, a wonderful way. So thank you so much for sharing everything. And before, before I uh, take us out here, I know you probably want to say something I see. <laughs> let's, uh, let's do, let's do a final recommendation each yeah, let's uh, at the, at the end of this podcast. So I, um, I have a quote here and I'm going to, I'm going to give you two tools. So in any group that you're leading, whether it's a meeting, whether it's a dinner party, whether it's your book club, uh, this is this is a great philosophy to create deeper, more authentic connections. So I want to just contrast again the the prevalent philosophy for like a human connection strategy is if we just create the space in time and in physical our people will forge deep relationships naturally. So that's that's the prevalent philosophy. Now, the philosophy that I recommend is create the guide rails that encourage and facilitate deeper interactions while giving people the freedom to choose their own level of vulnerability. All right, so that's my philosophy. Now, the best way to create the guide rails is, you know, informed by this quote, the quality of the questions predicts the quality of the connection. And so giving people questions that are interesting and personal, giving people those questions to ask one another in the form of a connection snack or, you know, a breakout room, that's how leaders can start to really create those guide rails is by equipping people with better questions to ask one another. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. It's a, honestly, it's a really simple way to create more connection. And for all of us in HR, I mean, this is something hopefully we're all passionate about. And I think it's a good takeaway for everyone to go into the rest of their week with and really think about noodle on it, noodle on it. Um, well, Jacques, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Before I let you go, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you and learn more about just your whole ethos? Yeah, thepartyscientist.com is the home of my podcast and blog about facilitating deeper connection in groups. Love it. Thank you so much for joining the podcast and for sharing your wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. Woo! <laughs> hey, just before you go, don't forget to subscribe to the show so that you are the first to hear when an episode drops each week. And maybe leave a five-star review and a comment about how much you loved this episode. Plus, if you have someone in mind who would really enjoy this episode, make sure you share it with them. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.